good. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Should be on page 952-ish. 953, it's in the bulletin. There it is, 953 in the Pew Bible. As you're turning there, just uh, one more announcement. Youth group will be meeting at 6.30 to 8 this evening at The Rock. So youth group combined, middle school, high school, 6.30 to 8 at The Rock tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to read the entire chapter. Let me read it as we begin this morning. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building according to the grace of God given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let the one boast in, so let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word or your life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. 
and Christ is God's. Father, help us to process your word as we hear it proclaimed. Help us to have ears to hear, minds to believe, hearts to love, and hands and feet to go out and do. In Christ's name, amen. For those of you who have heard some of the story, some of you may know that I consider myself a, a, a somewhat handy-ish person. I'm generally pretty mechanical. I don't always love doing it, but generally if something is broke, I can figure out how to fix it. I, I don't mind working on things. I figure out how things get together, usually. To that end, some of you know we've been restoring the last... Um, Five years or so, we were restoring our 105-year-old house in Philadelphia. And we were probably, I don't know, we probably got to, before we moved out here, 65 to 70% done. Now, it was a structurally sound old home, 105 years old. Unfortunately, it had all the character, all the style, and all the beauty stripped out of it. So our desire was to put some of that back, to make it characterful again, to give it a little of what it lost, one thing that with renovating is that pretty mu I pretty much did everything from electric to plumbing to framing to drywall. But here's the thing. As I'm doing all that, I never felt confident in any of it. I'm not an electrician, even though I can run a circuit. I'm not a framer, even though I can put up a wall. I'm not a drywaller, even though and I hate taping, I can tape. I'm not a plumber even though I can put in a toilet. By the way, that's nasty business. The point is this. I could do those things. I knew how to do those things. But I never fully felt adequate to the task of doing those things. See, the same idea applies to church leadership, to church membership, and if we're honest, the Christian life in general. God calls us to a task, the task to make disciples. This is our mission. This is our purpose. This is what we've been talking about. This is our job responsibility. But I don't think I'm alone in saying that I don't feel up to the task. I think most of you here this morning probably don't feel up to the task. We heard this morning in Sunday school the importance of making disciples, equipping other believers. But you know what? We all don't feel up to the task. So what do we do? We can go to a class. We can go on YouTube because, you know, everything's on YouTube. We can get trained, take some discipleship courses. We can get mentored. But here is the thing. We will still not be up to the task. But let me tell you, that's actually good news. If you feel unable to the task God has called you, that is exactly where God wants you. He wants you to come with a posture of weakness. Because in your weakness, God's power is shown. When we minister, serve, and make disciples out of a posture of weakness, the power of God, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, that is the power that helps broken, weak me make a disciple. And who gets the glory? Me? No, God gets the glory. And this is how God's upside-down kingdom works. 
Last week we talked about the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to make disciples. And a disciple, I said, is someone who receives the wisdom of God, receives it, but then seeks to impart that wisdom to others in a spirit, in a posture of humility and weakness. The point being is that disciples make other disciples. We, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, are, are to be a reproducing follower. You are to be making disciples. This morning, I want us to take a deeper look at that responsibility. How does our responsibility of making disciples fit together with God's promise that He builds His church? What does Jesus say? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if Jesus is building his church, how do we fit in? What is our role? What is our purpose? How, does, how do we as disciple makers fit into the larger program of God building his church? I believe Paul answers those questions in chapter 3. You could say this chapter is God's program for church growth. This is how God plans to grow his church. God builds the church, so what is our role in it? In order to answer that, I want us to look at five aspects of God's church growth program. In verses 1 to 4, we're going to see the Corinthians' failure to understand church growth. 1 to 4, Corinthians' failure to understand church growth. The second one, in verses 5 to 9, we'll see God grows the church, but uses tools. Third, in verses 10 to 15, Jesus is the church's one foundation. Fourth, in verses 16 to 17, Jesus protects what he builds. And lastly, what is our primary role in all of this? In verses 18 to 23, we must become fools for Christ's sake. So the first one, the failure to understand church growth. Secondly, God grows the church but uses tools. Third, Jesus is the church's one foundation. Fourth, Jesus protects what he builds. And lastly, we must become fools for the sake of Christ. So let's begin with the Corinthians' failure to understand church growth. Look again with me at verses 1 through 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Let's be honest here. Paul scolds them. Paul does not bother mincing words. He's not sugarcoating anything. He scolds them. He says, you are acting like children. You're not even really acting like believers in Christ. Now remember how he starts off this letter in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. He is not denying that they are saints. He's just saying they have a long way to go. And he's saying they are spiritually immature saints. Paul's prophetic here. He's not afraid to call out 
the church and say it like it is. You are spiritually immature. They're not spiritual people. They're people of the flesh. They're mere infants in Christ. Here's the thing. Their actions betray their immaturity. Their actions betray their immaturity. That's something we should consider. What do our actions say about our spiritual maturity or the lack thereof? Are we mature in Christ or are we mere infants? He fed them milk because they couldn't handle the solid food. Now after my surgery, I could not handle the solid food. For it felt like forever, but at least it was probably more than two weeks. Chocolate pudding and jello. I've not wanted to touch chocolate pudding and jello for a while now, even though I saw one of my kids the other day had one. I got an immediate craving, which was really weird. But I could not handle solid food. That bacon cheeseburger that I desperately wanted was off the table after my surgery. I could not touch it. I could not handle it. And Paul says, you can't handle the solid food. You can't handle the meat. You can't handle the stuff you should be eating as mature Christians. You're not ready. You're still of the flesh. So what's the problem? What are they failing to get? Why is Paul blasting them and calling them children of the flesh? Look at verse 3. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you. Jealousy and strife. They're trying to interestingly grow the church by exalting one leader over another. They're trying to grow the church by pitting Paul and Apollos and Cephas. They're trying to grow the church, ironically, in a twisted irony, through arguing, bickering, and strife. Let me tell you this, Grace Chapel, conflict will not grow a church. Division will not grow a church. Lifting up one leader over another will not make a healthy church. Failing to respect and care and love for your leaders will not make a healthy church. Failing to love one another will not make a healthy church. Paul is saying you are not acting godly because there's strife and there's jealousy among you. Your church will not grow if you're arguing. You could grow, and here's the thing, you could grow numerically. You could become a mega church but still be a church feasting on milk because of jealousy and strife and arguing. And it will not be grow into a godly spiritual house. I want us to pause here a, a moment. Where are we, Grace Chapel, on that spectrum? Where are you and I as individuals? Are we still drinking baby formula? Or have we moved on to spiritual food? Same question, different way. Is there jealousy among us? Is there strife among us? Is there division among us? Is there a lack of love among us? If so, Paul's warning to the Corinthians is the same warning to us. You are mere infants in Christ. You are still of the flesh. 
Paul's desire and prayer throughout this letter is that the Corinthians would grow up. Be mature in Christ. Seek solid food. Be rid of jealousy. Be rid of strife. Pursue maturity. Pursue solid food. Pursue peace. Pursue love. Grace Chapel, how much growing up do we have to do? You as individuals, how much growing up do we have to do? But here's the hope. The second point. God grows the church, but He uses tools. If we're faithfully pursuing God's mission of making disciples, then we must grow up. So Paul's second point, God grows the church, but uses tools. Look at chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I want us to see two things from this, these verses. The first thing is this, and this is hopeful. God is at work. God is at work. He is the one who builds the church twice. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says that God gives the growth. We need to understand that because that has an important implication for us. If God is building his church, then in a very real way, he doesn't need you and me. If God is growing the church, he does not need you. He does not need our ministry. He does not need our programs. He doesn't need our discipling. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our labor. He is building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail. His glorious bride will stand victorious with him. But keep that together because there's a second thing. God is at work and does not need us, but here's the second thing. God delights in using us. God delights in using us. His church will be built with or without us, but God delights in using us. The point being, God is building the church and God uses tools. Look at verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the work we are called to do. God, as he's building his church, uses tools. Brothers and sisters, we, the hammer in the hand of the Father, the saw in the Spirit's toolbox, if you will, we are the tools that God delights to use. And that is what brings joy and humility. What a privilege. Do we realize the privilege we have? to be used by God to build His church? If anything, that should humble us, that God would use us. What does Paul say? We are nothing. 
Paul the Apostle, the one we feel we look up to, says, I am nothing because his point is that God is everything. We, church, are nothing, but God delights in using broken tools to build a beautiful church. I love this quote from Martin Luther. Some of his followers were making a lot of him, too much of the movement. They were starting to call it Lutheranism. And Luther, while he was still alive, calls them out. Here's his response. Luther says to those who are talking about Lutheranism, In the first place, I ask that men make no reference to my name. Let them call themselves Christians, not Lutherans. What is Luther? After all, the teaching is not mine. Neither was I crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians would not allow the Christians to call themselves Pauline or Petrine, but Christians. How then should I, poor stinking maggot fodder that I am, come to have men call the children of God by my wretched name? Not so, my dear friends. Let us abolish all party names and call ourselves Christians after him whose teaching we hold. What Luther is saying is, make no reference to my name. We are Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Luther? What is Will? What are you? Poor, stinking, maggot fodder. We are nothing but followers of Christ. We are the mere tools in the hands of the master craftsman. We need to grasp that God is the one who grows and builds his church. Yes, he delights in using broken tools, but he doesn't have to. God is building his church, and the church is growing. So let us humble ourselves that we may be used by him. The third point this morning, God's church growth program is this, and it's a foundational one. It's that Jesus Christ is the church's one foundation. Look at verses 10 to 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Here's what Paul is saying. His work of laying the foundation is all because of the grace of God. Because of this grace of God that changed a murderer, Saul, into a proclaimer, Paul. 
He is a skilled master builder laying a foundation. Now someone else is building upon it. The idea we all have a role. Paul had a role. Apollos had a role. We all have jobs to do. Even as we heard this morning, every follower of Christ should be doing what? Making disciples. We are disciples. And part of the job description of a disciple is making other disciples. But we do so knowing full well, and this gives me hope, that it's not dependent upon us. God's grace works through us. This is how God builds the church through grace, and he builds it upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. What did we sing a few moments ago? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. We are that church. We have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. For our life, he died so that we might become his holy bride. We are a new creation. The church is God's building, founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the beautiful bride, the new creation. This is what joy we have to be a part of. God's church growth program. Disciples, making other disciples. For the past few months, we've talked a bit here about how do we move forward as a church, right? How does Grace Chapel move forward? There's been some growing pains along the way, maybe. But here's where I am hopeful. Here's where I, as a new pastor coming in, can have hope. Here's where you should have hope. Grace Chapel is founded upon Jesus Christ, and Grace Chapel will remain founded upon Jesus Christ. That foundation makes all the difference. Maybe some of our carpeting and wallpaper, and I'm speaking metaphorically here, will need to be replaced. Maybe there will be a wall that has no longer served its purpose that we'll have to tear down. Maybe we'll have to build new walls. But here's the thing that will not change. Jesus Christ, our foundation. We may disagree what walls we tear down and what walls we build up, but we must never disagree on this. Jesus Christ, our one foundation. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. And Jesus Christ, even though we have disagreements, we are united on one foundation, one church united in one love one spirit, one faith because of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Otherwise, Paul says, if your church is not on Jesus as the foundation, time's going to get up, catch up. Time will catch up. It will be revealed on the end. There's a ton of things people build churches upon. Personalities, programs, people, pastors. Fill in the blank Paul says they are like gold, silver, wood, hay, and straw. They will be destroyed. And if, they, if the foundation is destroyed, what happens to the structure? But if we build our church on Jesus, the one foundation, then no matter what storms come, 
the church will march on. So let me encourage us. Let's redouble our efforts today to make absolutely certain that when the day comes, the day where Christ returns, that when the day when our foundation is exposed, that when Christ pulls back the curtain of our foundation, that it is Jesus Christ himself that we are resting on, that Jesus Christ is our solid rock, that he is the chief cornerstone. May our church be built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth point, a short one, but an important one. God protects what he builds. Look at verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We are the temple. The spirit dwells within us, the church. If anyone destroys the church, God says, I will destroy them. What, that is a declaration of war. God is saying, if you destroy my church, whether it's through internal bickering or outward persecution, I will destroy you, God says. In the words of Jesus, the gates of hell will not prevail. Now here's the interesting thing. Yes, God will protect his church, but that doesn't mean he will protect this local church or a local church in China or somewhere else for the long run. Because do you ever think about this? The Corinthian church no longer exists. That should humble us, maybe terrify us a little bit. Depending on how long it takes for Christ to return, 111-year-old Grace Chapel may at one point cease to exist. But that doesn't mean God's church isn't marching on. One of the things that always broke my heart as I drove through Philly is to see all the abandoned church buildings. Now, let's be clear, those buildings are not the church, but they represented the people of God who met in that building to worship Christ. Now they're apartments for hipsters. Now they're empty. Now they're abandoned. The seven churches in Turkey, when I was there in Turkey, you would go up, and you'd see crumbling rocks and no presence of Christ there. But God, in Turkey even, is still building the church. See, local churches may come and go, but God promises to keep his pe people. God keeps his church. There's a four-volume history of the church. There's an excellent 2,000 years of Christ's power. By Nick Needham. 2,000 years of Christ's power. What a great title. That is the story of the church. 
Yes, she has faced insurmountable suffering. Yes, she, churches have died, but churches have risen again. And Christ continues for 2,000 years to build his church. So we sang this morning, the church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. That is hope. God's church shall ever prevail. God protects his own. He protects what he builds. This should give us hope and confidence that God protects his people and promises them that his presence will be with them to the very end of the age. So we can, with humble confidence, go forth making disciples, proclaiming Christ's power, knowing with full confidence and full assurance that the gates of hell will not prevail. So how do we fit in? What's our part in this? As God builds his church, how does he use his tools? How does he use the tools of our trade? What is our purpose? What is, what is our mission? We already talked about that. It's to make disciples. But how do we make disciples? One important aspect of that that Paul says is to become fools for Christ's sake become fools. Look at verses 18 to 23 as we conclude this morning. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's is God's. We must not be deceived. Don't think that you're wise. We must become fools for Christ's sake. Then and only then, as we become fools, we truly become wise. The wisdom of this world is passing away. Only God's wisdom will remain. As we make disciples, we must pursue the folly of the cross. We must become fools for Christ's sake. What does it look like to be a fool for Christ? How do we view and treat fools? I'm sure all of you, if I gave you time, could think of someone who acts foolishly in your life. How are we to view fools? Fools are despised in this world, right? Fools charge at windmills, sword in hand. They are seen as imbeciles through the world's eyes. A fool is a madman, a bird brain, a blockhead, a dolt, a dodo, a dumbbell, a dummy, a dunce, a fathead, an idiot, an ignoramus, a moron, a numbskull, a nitwit, a knucklehead, a ninny hammer. I like that one. And a schlump. Ninny hammer and schlump. There's some great synonyms for a fool. So how are we, if you'll allow me, to be a ninny hammer for Christ? 
How are we to be a slump for Christ? How are we to be a fool for Christ? Here it is. We must have humble confidence in God's presence and God's power as we make disciples. We must have humble confidence in God's presence and his power as we make disciples. He has promised us his spirit if we are his disciple. He is present with us now. And that same power, are you afraid of evangelizing? Are you afraid of talking to your neighbor? Are you afraid of, as we heard this morning, going up to someone and saying, I want to walk together with you to know more about Christ? Are you afraid of doing that? Then you don't know the power within you. That power within you is the power that rose our Lord Jesus Christ three days dead in the tomb alive, seated now in the heavenlies, interceding, praying for you. And you're afraid to cross the room and tell someone about Christ. It's awkward. It's foolish. I was talking with someone this morning and he said how hard it is to share with others. And it is hard because we don't like looking at like fools. We're more worried about what we look like. Now, I'm not saying be a fool just being stupid and foolish. Be wise about it. But here's the thing. As we said before, Christianity is not cool. It's not getting any cooler. It's not. So what does Paul tell us? Become a fool. Cherish the gospel. Love and celebrate and proclaim and allow your life to exude the hope that comes from the cross and the empty tomb. The world will look at that and think you're an absolute fool. But Paul says, as we saw the week before, those are the ones who are perishing. But to those who see the power of the cross, which seems foolishness to the world, that is our power for salvation. So we come and share and make disciples. We befriend our neighbors. We love people who are different from us because we have humble confidence that God's power and God's presence is with us. So it doesn't matter what they call us. Actually, I'd love to be called a ninny hammer. What matters is what we proclaim. The power of God for salvation. Foolishness to the world. A stumbling block to Jews for us who believe the power of God for salvation. And this is the message we have to proclaim with humble confidence in God's presence and power. Look at the last phrase, and I'll end with this. Verse 23. Church, this is for us as it was for the Corinthians. You are Christ. And if there was any doubt that Christ could hold you, what does it say next? Christ is God's. There is power and presence. We are secure, forever His, forever God's children. Therefore, because we are forever God's children, we may have humble confidence knowing that as we embark upon this foolish task of making disciples, that God will use us broken tools 
to make other disciples. So with humble confidence, we answer the commission of Christ to go and to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to teach them to observe and obey all that Jesus taught, resting assured that Jesus' promise and his power and his presence are with us. May we, church, be fools for Christ. Fools who faithfully, humbly, and confidently proclaim the glories of his great name as we make disciples of one another. Let us pray. Father, we do not have within us the strength. We do not have within us the power. We do not have within us the words. But we have you within us. So that really changes everything. We have your power, your presence, your spirit. We are your holy temple commissioned to make disciples. Help us to see the power that resides within us, the living power of your spirit. And may we be motivated and impelled and compelled by the love of Christ to go and make disciples of one another. We thank you that you have given us this task. What joy it is to participate in your upside-down kingdom. We give you praise with much thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen.